0: More than any other aspect of the hobby of amateur astronomy, the prospect of amateurs using their equipment to help professionals is growing the fastest. More than at any other time, amateur equipment is good enough and numerous enough to have an impact on advancing our knowledge of the cosmos. Professional Amateur Collaborations, on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're going to be a little bit later on. I'm going to be talking with Dustin about wide field telescopes, very short focal length wide field telescopes like the Celestron Rasa and others that have just become out come out and available to the amateur astronomy hobby for a reasonable price, which is something I find quite amazing. So uh, join us for that in just a few minutes. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about using your equipment to further the knowledge of the cosmos in the professional realm. I have often said in many conversations with Dustin and on this podcast, that I think this is one of the most underappreciated and underutilized areas of our hobby. One in which we, just a normal person who just bought some telescopes and cameras and mounts, can use that stuff to make a meaningful contribution in the world of professional astronomy. And so if you've just bought a telescope or if you've been using your telescope for a while and you've been imaging and you've taken about a billion pictures of the Andromeda galaxy and a billion and a half pictures of the Orion nebula, and now you're looking for different challenges, then I would encourage you to think about this topic a little bit because the door is wide open. You can make a name for yourself. You can get involved with professional astronomers. You can get your names on papers as co-authors. This is a very interesting time to make a scientific contribution using your amateur equipment. So I am very excited about this possibility, and I want to tell you guys a little bit more about this. Now, the main reason I think that this is sort of a golden age of this hobby, Pro-Am collaboration is kind of a... Uh, golden age period right now, is is that the need is so great. Um, professional astronomers have access to large ground and space-based observatories, the best in the world, the best in the history of humanity, but they're oversubscribed. Getting time on these telescopes takes a lot of effort. You, For example, every year proposals are submitted to use the Hubble Space Telescope they have so many they and they issue time on hubble in in units of orbits which is a 90 minute series of observations on the hubble space telescope they have so many slots available but they have uh, hundreds of times more proposals than they do uh, observing slots so you've got to have the best of the best use case to use the Hubble Space Telescope with your idea, with your observations, or with your research. So it's very, very competitive. And the same is true, of course, coming up with the James Webb Space Telescope. They've already decided the first year of observations. And every proposal cycle, uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute goes into this mode where they pick the next year's observations based on a lot of factors. But, you know, the, the needless to say, it's highly competitive. So their observations don't always get done. The same is true for ground-based telescopes. ALMA is a radio telescope, highly oversubscribed. Um, All of the big telescopes on Mauna Kea and Paranal and uh, down in the Andes Mountains, all of them are oversubscribed as it is. So an astronomer, an observational astronomer, uh, is having a hard time getting some data. This is one reason why I think we have so many theorists in the field, because observational astronomy is sort of choked as far as what, information we can glean from the instruments that we do have. So everybody becomes a modeler so that they can become gainfully employed in the field. Um, We have way more models than we have observations to substantiate those models. So the need is very great. These, all of these telescopes produce large data sets and they're very difficult to process and analyze. So that takes a lot of time as well. And so for us as amateurs, we have lots of equipment that is actually usable for some of these science questions. We have a lot of equipment and much of it sits around unused for a good percentage of the time. I'm not saying everybody who, you know, uh, lets our equipment sit around, but let's let's face it, we don't all go out every single night and, and observe with our telescope. So we've got down cycles of a lot of this stuff, both in optical tube assemblies and aperture uh, sitting around as well as pixels sitting around. So why not? try and make that usable for professionals so the need is very great now (laughs) this is i should mention that this is not a new thing pro-am collaborations have been around for a very very long time i mean i guess they really started taking off in the mid-19th century so around the 1850s or so um this has kind of been a thing right um but back then, things were a little bit different. Commercial telescopes that you could buy off the shelf on order of, say, three inches or so, would they were expensive. They cost several months' wages uh, for, say, an office clerk of the time. So they really couldn't afford to buy these small telescopes. So mostly rich people went into the field of amateur astronomy back then. And for rich amateurs, that was where a lot of the advancement in science came from was from well-funded patrons who actually hired professional astronomers to do some of their observations and data analysis for them, which I found was pretty interesting. But I guess if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, Charles Darwin was an example of a rich naturalist you know, back then these were gentlemen scholars, I guess they called them or something. They would go around and they would advance science because they were smart people with a lot of money sitting around all day and they wanted to answer these questions. So they just did. Um, That's a lot about how science, that's the story of science in the 19th and even the uh, 18th century, uh, how things got done. So, you know, if you are a rich person, a businessman, and you have a science interest, you were the one probably making the most advances in science at the time. You would hire professional astronomers to do some work for you. A good example, when I was getting ready to do this podcast, I looked some stuff up and there's this one guy, his name was William Parsons. He was the third Earl of Rossi, I think, R-O-S-S-E in Ireland. And he was educated in math uh, in Cambridge at the UK. Um, And he got this education before he had to run his estate. Uh, his castle he had a castle and so but he built using his money a 1.8 meter f9 telescope and he wanted to look at the objects or extend observations of the objects in herschel's catalog these were galaxies were nebulae at the time actually and then for 70 years the interesting thing about this for 70 years that was the biggest telescope in the world a 1.8 meter reflector and, but, you know, he was an Earl. He was busy. He couldn't always be observing with his telescope, couldn't justify it. Uh, so he hired this guy named George John Stone Stoney, his 22-year-old astronomer, straight out of, out of uni, and uh, he hired him to, to draw the M51 nebula. He was studying the M51. We know it as a galaxy, but at the time they didn't. They called it a nebula, and he wanted more drawings of that, and he paid an astronomer to do his work for him. And another famous example of this, I'm going to mention Percival Lowell here, because um, I think he qualifies more as an amateur, as a professional, but I'm not entirely sure. For those of you who don't know, Percival Lowell was a businessman, also in the late 1800s, early 20th century. And um, he was a well-educated businessman. He had degrees in math from Cambridge, or not from Cambridge, but from um, American universities. And uh, But he wanted to study the canals of Mars. That was his big thing. He was interested in Martian canali. And um, so he wanted a telescope that allowed him to make these observations. And so he built the observatory that bears his name in Flagstaff, Arizona right now, the Lowell Observatory. And I think he did most of his observations as an amateur because he got his money from his business, not from being a paid astronomer. And I don't know that it makes that much difference, but I guess the way in which you can, at least certainly in today's world, the way you're classified as an astronomer with a capital A versus an amateur astronomer with lowercase a's is the whether or not you're getting paid for it as a job. And I don't think Percival Lowell ever was, but nonetheless, he made a lot of observations of Mars. Almost all of his conclusions about Mars were wrong, but he built important telescopes that to this day are still being used in the professional community. And He was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1892. And so there's another example of how I think amateurs were responsible for the advancement of our knowledge of the universe, more so than professional Astronomers were, and that's kind of been true for this whole field of study more than any other science. I think astronomy has benefited from the work of amateurs, probably more than any other. Almost everything that came to us in the nineteenth century I think came to us from amateurs, so it's interesting to think about that um you know, of course, now you know uh, things have changed. Things have kind of diverged here in the 20th century. Uh, say around the mid 20th centuries up until up until now, um, things kind of separated. You know, amateurs, the work of amateurs and professionals weren't so quote closely entwined, mostly because the field of astrophysics, which had sort of burgeoned, it's sort of it's this idea that uses physics to explain a lot of the astronomical observations that are out there. You're not astronomy. Here's sort of a loose difference that I think I've learned about the difference between astronomy and astrophysics for years. I balked at it because it's like, what the hell's the difference between an astronomer and an astrophysicist? And I just think it's because my, and I still think this, that the real reason everybody calls themselves astrophysicists now, instead of an astronomer is because that sounds cooler and it sounds harder. But to be, perfectly fair, a, an, a degree in astrophysics is actually less hard than a degree in physics itself. So I, I speak from experience on this because I had a chance to choose between the two majors when I was in college, and I kept with physics because it was actually more rigorous than the study of astrophysics. So for a long time, I'm like, oh, God, this guy's got an eco. He wants to be called an astrophysicist and not a, an astronomer because it sounds cooler and he gets to get more views on YouTube. But there kind of is a difference between the two now, not much of one in terms of jobs. They're the same job. An astronomer and an astrophysicist are the same. I don't care what you say. But the study of astrophysics and uses more of the properties of physics to explain astrophysical phenomena, things like the life cycles of stars, you know, the nuclear reactions and the particles, and the, the, the nuclear reactions that go on in a, in a star, the particles that are associated with all of these different interactions in a cosmic context, all of that is. Astrophysics, where uh, studying, say, the motions of the planets, eclipses, transits, all of this stuff, that's more astronomy observations based on motions and objects in the heavens. That's kind of what I've been able to glean from this difference, although it isn't much of a difference, in my opinion. But there you go. But things kind of did get harder in the 20th century. So amateurs needed more knowledge. Uh, to make a contribution. And they needed better equipment. A lot of things relied on spectroscopy to get any knowledge of stars. Redshift came out of this. Uh, Edwin Hubble discovered the the, uh, the expansion of the universe using spectra of other galaxies. We finally learned that galaxies were not nebulae. Those fuzzy patches in the sky were actually distant galaxies. We learned all of this from spectroscopic observations. And so that was a harder thing to do certainly a more expensive thing to do than an amateur could contribute. And so things diverged and professionals had to build these monstrous, you know, hundred inch, 200 inch telescopes uh, with all of this expensive gear to hang on the end of it. Cameras, photographic film, all of that stuff was extremely expensive for a, an amateur to afford. And even rich amateurs were like, you know what? That's a little bit too much for me. I'm not doing it. They wanted to make more money. And so, things kind of diverged for a while and you also needed quite a bit of knowledge to really make a contribution. You could, you needed to have a lot of math, a lot of, a lot of science training to understand the life cycle of stars, for example, uh, to be able to make a good contribution to the field. So there was kind of a divergence for a while between the two. Now, In the past, that still didn't preclude amateurs from getting involved. We had for many, many years, the American Association of Variable Star Observers, um, ABSO. They've been around for a long time and they were one of the first all-sky amateur surveys. They were dedicated to building a, a database of variable star light curves. Some stars get bright and dim and bright again. And they're different kinds of stars, but the ones of most interest were Cepheid variables because their, their their difference in brightness or their periods were related to their uh, brightness. And so that was a very good yardstick to learning distances. And so people wanted to get a lot of information on that. So they would enlist amateurs with their eight inch reflectors, most of them homemade. <laughs> and they, they would tell you how to look at a star and estimate its brightness. You had to kind of calibrate your eyeball to say, well, this is currently a, uh, a ninth magnitude star. Uh, and, and you had to, you know, give your just, you had to sort of train your eye to give a brightness. And of course they would, if they gathered up enough of these observations of a variable star, then they could throw out the extrema. They could use statistical, they could use statistics on it to decide what the sort of um, mean brightness is of that variable star at any given date and time. So um, that was the first, that wa- was one of the first ways in modern times that you and I could get involved. And this, of course, that data set was used by professional astronomers studying V C-field variables and other variable stars to get information from that today. Um, and they still use it. It's still around. Now they've also added, since the discovery of exoplanets, these are planets around other stars, They've added. they've added a transiting exoplanet database as well. So now you can measure using your equipment, transiting exoplanets and put it in. It fits in with their mission because it's involved with stars varying in brightness. Nowadays with computers and cameras, all you really have to do is be careful about calibrating your camera to get a decent flux from each of these stars and just send it in automatically. Uh, that's probably one of the easiest ways to get involved in uh, in am Uh, Astronomy. So that's been around, still around today, uh, still available to you. Um, But now, today, here in the 21st century, astronomers need more data than they can possibly gather themselves. They need to learn a lot of stuff and they need to verify data that has already been taken by their oversubscribed professional space telescopes or professional observatories on the ground. So nowadays, all of us have at our disposal. Optical tubes that are outstanding. They have good color response across a wide variety of wavelengths. We can just go buy them and put them in our, on our mounts. The cameras that we have available to us are more sensitive than uh, at many different wavelengths than ever before. Um, resolution is higher because we can, get bigger, uh, we can get bigger aperture, but we can also buy better refractors that give us better uh, resolution as well. Our filters have gotten better, uh, both solar filters and photometric filters uh, that measure different uh, the brightness of stars in different uh, wavelengths, red, green, blue, or whatever, things like that. And on top of that, software has gotten efficient enough, professional software from astronomy, <laughs> that they actually use themselves has gotten efficient enough that it can run on laptops. Laptops have gotten powerful enough to be able to run this stuff. A notable example is Astromatic. If you go to Astromatic.org, Astro, the O is actually a zero. So you have to go ASTR, zero-matic.org. That's written, that is the home of software written by a guy named Emmanuel Berton. He's, He's French, and he has written the standard. For automatic data processing, it will go through a list of very large astronomical images. Some of them terabyte or gigabytes in size, would make in terabytes of data at a time to identify whether an object in a in a particular image is a star or a galaxy or whether it's a superposition of several galaxies on top of each other. It can de-blend those. It's called Source Extractor. It's used by astronomers all over the world and it's available to you. You can just download it. It's free. He uh, used it, he wrote his PhD. It was his it was a result of his PhD thesis. Um, this is software that can be run. It's not trivial to run, but he has extensive documentation on how to use it on any kind of FITS image you may have you may want to create. Now FITS is the flexible image transport system, and that is the data format. That if you are familiar at all with imaging, you know what a FITS image is. It's got a header data unit, and it's it's um, it's design. It's the standard for astronomical in, in, uh, images in the professional realm, and so um, it's something that it uses natively. So, astromatic.org source extractor is one thing you can you can use. So, and that's gotten available. We can use it ourselves now. You don't need a big mini computer or super computer or any of that kind of stuff to run it. So our computers are faster. They have more memory, of course. And what's interesting is that in this day and age, building a robotic telescope, one that you just set up once and run from anywhere in the world or you can run it from your backyard automatically, is is in reach now more than ever. I think if I were serious about being a Pro-Am contributor, I would probably want to set my system up as automatic as I to be as automatic as possible because I want to turn it on, do a set of observations, analyze the data, send it to whomever and have them, you know, use it in the way that they want to use it. The setup time up front is pretty large, but that's probably how I would go about it if I were going to do it myself this day and age. I don't do it much because I spent a lifetime doing it, so I'm not all that interested. But there are you know, plenty of ways uh, for anybody else to get involved and do this. So I would definitely encourage anybody else interested in doing it. Another big advance today that's been going on is that machine learning is making a huge difference in processing and analyzing large data sets. In a sense, Source Extractor that I just told you about is a form of machine learning. It uses a form of machine learning to identify objects, but that's getting better all the time. So with all of this having been said, a almost any kind of equipment setup that you can come up with and envision can be used um, and can find a place in this field. So what kind of work could you expect to do? Let's say you decide, yeah, man, Tony's got me. I want this. I want, I want to do this. What can I do? How would I get involved? What kind of things can I do? Well, to me, the most exciting thing to get involved in are exoplanet transit observations. There are now we've had the Kepler space telescope stare at one area of the sky in Cygnus. I told you about this in the last episode on exoplanets and it discovered all, it looked at 160,000 stars and it found all these candidates. Those candidates need to be confirmed with follow-up observations. So you take your telescope, go to one of those candidates and stare at it for a very long time. The same is true for TESS, that's also currently in orbit right now over Earth, looking at um, exoplanets, There, they and they issue these things called TESS Objects of Interest. All of this stuff is available online. Uh, they need follow-up observations. So, And if you think about it, this is the kind of thing that needs to be ongoing. TESS or Kepler or any of the ground-based telescopes, not many, doing transit work, We'll we'll give you a candidate star. They'll see a dip in brightness and they'll go, "Aha, that could have a planet around it," but you've got to observe it for months, if not years, to get an accurate view of just how many planets are in orbit around that star and what their periods are. If you wanted to measure an Earth-like planet around an Earth-like sun or a sun-like star, and that's under our configuration, you would need to have three hundred and sixty-five Days at a minimum, to of observations to determine the period of our of the Earth around the Sun, and space telescopes don't have the time to do that. They can just flag a a potential object of interest. It's up to us to go back to those stars and follow up and make more light curves. And go, oh yeah! Not only is there one planet, but I saw another dip in brightness. And the more observations that we get in this, the more we can determine what the system is like. So that needs an ongoing thing. And if you want to learn more about this, there is Mike Aitke, A-I-T-K-E. He streams on Twitch a lot of times, and uh, he, he's got a Twitter handle also. Uh, Mike Aitke, I believe, is, 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 the, is the handle. He's doing this. He's got a plane wave telescope in South Africa, I believe, and he is doing tests follow-up observations. That's a plane wave you don't need a plane wave for this, but a, he's a resource online and, and you, there's lots of other resources that are doing this as well. For example, the next thing you can do is you could instead of near earth ob- or I'm sorry instead of uh, transiting exoplanets, you could look at near earth objects or asteroids that may be flying around and that's why the the topic of our gear segment with with wide field um, telescopes, you should pay close attention because you're going to need a wide field Schmidt camera type arrangement to do this. A man named um, Mike Forslund, uh, he's known as the Handle Asteroid Hunters, is doing this kind of work. He has a RASA in his backyard that he's using, and uh, he has been uh, making observations and supplying them to amp- to professionals for a long time. Um, so that's a, that's someone else you should follow or at least reach out to uh, on social media, and he can tell you what he went through. Uh, to get set up and going. Um, You can make planet observations. Astronomers are very interested in tracking things on Jupiter, the moons of Jupiter, the features on Jupiter. And all of these kinds of um, observations are are desperately needed by astronomers. So you can do that. Uh, Jupiter and Venus are good examples of this. Uh, But there's also solar observations. You can imagine sunspot activity is very interesting to astronomers, as well as going to eclipses and photographing the, the, uh, Corona. Uh, and nowadays we have these really great solar telescopes from Lund. <laughs> it amazes me solar, solar, the, the advances of solar of uh, telescopes have gotten so incredibly great that the, you know, the, they just blow me away. You can see the sun, the disc of the sun in H alpha with a double stacked Lund Telescope, a Solar Telescope, for at a, at a quarter angstrom. And that will allow you to see detail that was only available in professional telescopes just 20 years ago. Um, and so you could see filaments, you can see active regions, you can see prominences, you can see all of this activity using the solar telescope. So that would, is also an amazing opportunity to get involved there. So. Um, These are the kinds of work that you could expect to do in a pro-am situation. But how would you get involved? Well, so I thought I would talk about different projects because I didn't think there would be that many. I mentioned AVSO and there's a few other things, but my God, I was like, oh man, there's no way I can talk about all of this in the uh, segment that I have. So sky and Telescope has a great web page on all of the Pro Am collaborations. If you just do a Google search on Pro Am Pro Professional Amateur Collaboration Astronomy, uh, you're going to get all these links, all this all this stuff. And so you can see all the different things that are out there. I'm going to mention just the, the 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 few that I mentioned ABSO, the Atlas uh, database that uh, Mike Forceland uses for asteroid hunters. I like AVSO because you can also do transiting work with them. But there's also another one. I ran across this guy uh, at Nief, uh a, while, a few years ago. Uh, there were some astronomers <laughs> sitting at a table off in the corner, and I talked to them. They were running a project called Panoptes, which is P-A-N-O-P-T-E-S, and it stands for Panoptic Astronomical Networked Observatories for, Publi- Publi- for Public Transiting Exoplanets Survey so all of that means this is a transiting exoplanet survey, but they have actually gone through the trouble of telling you what equipment to buy and set up. And then once you've bought and set up that equipment, it's a, it's a matter, I think it's like two Canon, um, lenses, uh, connected together with a mount that they recommend and some networking stuff so they can connect to their network. Once you bought this stuff, and I think it costs a couple grand, a few grand, maybe, um, then you can connect to their setup and be a part of the community around the world um, of doing transiting exoplanet uh, light curves. They took a slightly different approach in that they want you to set up the equipment, buy it and set it up because they don't have the money. But if they can get enough people from around the world contributing, then they'll have a worldwide network of people looking at transiting exoplanets. And I thought it was a good project. Um, something that's reasonable. A lot of amateurs kind of realize you're in this hobby at varying levels of financial commitment. Some can buy this kind of stuff and not think twice. Other people have to go, wow, that's a lot of money. So, you know, that's the kind of thing you have to think about if it's worth it for you or not. So there are many, many different ways to get involved. One of them involves having your own stuff, your own equipment, and I've outlined those already for you. But then, You know, you don't have to spend a dime on anything to get involved too, because we live also in the golden age of astronomy data, and all of it is free. If you go to places like the McCulkey Archive for Space Telescopes, MAST, and it's at mast.sdsei.edu, you will have direct access to free data from the Hubble Space Telescope. The Panstar survey on 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 uh, Haleakala in Hawaii. there the Kepler data from the Kepler Space Telescope is there. The test data from the Tess uh, mission is stored there. Also, the James Webb Space Telescope data is all going to go there, and it's free. American taxpayers paid for all this. So with the exception of a one year embargo on the data that's taken by some observations, all of this stuff is available to you uh, for your own use. If you want an image of the Orion Nebula, what better way to get one than by creating your own from data, raw data from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's there. You've got it. And not only, not only is it invisible wavelengths, but it's in the infrared and it's in the UV. You've got all these different wavelengths that are available to you. And you can use this data in a variety of uh, citizen science initiatives. But the best use of this data, in my opinion, if you take the trouble, especially if you're younger, if you take the trouble to learn how to use that archive, to download the data and to process that data, the skills that you will gain in doing that, you could then transfer into a job. Because let me tell you this. If you, the field of astronomy, while it may be saturated with astronomers with a capital A, PhD astronomers, there is a desperate need for people who can process and analyze the data that come off of these. Instruments, and if you take the time to learn how to process the FITS data that come off of the Hubble Space Telescope and to create pretty pictures, post them on Instagram. There's people already doing this, right? There's a guy named Third Rock Astronomy on on uh, the um, on our Discord server does beautiful work with a lot of this stuff, and also um, um, other other people in the in the um, server are doing this as well. You could then take that. If you walked into a, a job and, and you would look, you know, let's say you went to AAS or let's see um AAS, it was job org I think it is and you go there and you look at all the job listings out there and you pick one that says software engineer you'll and see something that that um, requires working with data you apply for that job and say you know how to use any of these data sets and you know how to program write programs to analyze and process this data you will get a job That's how bad the need is for this. So if you're younger and looking to get started, use these data sets for free and download the software for free. If you learned, if you told them, you know how to, you knew about source extractor and you knew how to use it, my God, you could walk into a job. So there are plenty of jobs in astronomy and I'll do a whole podcast on this in the future where you could, you know, get yourself a job that isn't an astronomer with a capital A, but is a lot of other things that involve like, you know, building things, programming things and processing things. So I would um, recommend using the data sets and the Keck observatory has one, all of the ground-based observatories the uh, uh, European Southern Observatory. These are ground-based observatories. They also have data archives that you can get access to their data for free. And of course, the citizen science initiatives that are out there, things like Zooniverse, all of that stuff. There's a lot of those pre-canned citizen, they call them citizen science, but what they are is these little web page portals you can go to and it's designed to answer some specific question of, of science, whatever it is. And the astronomers behind it have gone to great lengths to package all the data so that you can just click. Um, on stuff. Like with Zooniverse, I thought Zooniverse was kind of boring. It just showed you all these different galaxies and you had to decide if it was a what kind of spiral it was or whether it was elliptical. Use pattern mat- matching uh, abilities of your human brain to get get these um, get these galaxies classified. And of course, since then, it's gotten a little bit more sophisticated. But personally, I find this a little bit boring. But you can do those. And the Zooniverse.org is the place to go to see a lot of those. Those are becoming popular now as well. So go to Sky and Telescope's webpage. You'll see so much other stuff that's available. Jupiter observation needs, uh, uh, solar stuff, all that kind of stuff. The British Astronomical Science Association also has this stuff. The International Astronomical Union, IAU, has a whole webpage on how to contribute to professional astronomy. So look at all that stuff. So as I close this out, let me just say that if I were getting started in amateur astronomy today... If it was just me starting out and I was a little young kid interested in space, like I remember I was, I still am, but like I was back when I was eight years old. Um, As I got older, I would probably try to use data from all these NASA missions in some way. That's probably how I would get started because when I was a kid, getting access to scopes was really hard. And while it's easier now and it's a little bit, you know, cheaper and stuff, it's not that cheap. And uh, so it's not trivial for, for a kid to get going. So I'd probably start with stuff that I knew was free from like Hubble or JWST or Tess or whatever. And also because I'm very interested in exoplanets, so I'd probably use that data too. I would probably start there because the knowledge I would gain, like I said, not only would help me get a job if I wanted one, but it would also better enable me to use my own stuff, right? The stuff that I did buy, I would have the skills for using FITS images and all that kind of stuff down the road. So I'd probably start there. I really think this is a underappreciated part of our hobby, so I hope you guys will look into it. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, let me know what you think. Would you get started on a pro am collaboration? Let me know. You guys are starting to email me, and I'm appreciating this. I'm going to read some of your emails a little bit later in the podcast. So thank you guys for emailing me, spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. Sometimes I say space junk podcast at deepastronomy.com. Doesn't matter, it's an alias, it all goes into my inbox. So either one works. So let me know. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Okay, so the topic of this segment is going to be wide-field telescopes. Now, let me tell you a story. I first started uh, my career at the High Altitude Observatory, like I've told you, in many different venues. And I remember seeing in the back of the parking lot a short, stubby-looking optical tube sitting on an LX200 mount. And it turned out that telescope was being used to find the very first, or to confirm the very first exoplanet ever found in, ever, in in human history. And it was a uh, really short and stubby F2 Schmidt camera. And I talked to the guy, Tim Brown, who was the pr- principal investigator on this, and he had spent, on order of, I think, $30,000, just for that optical tube assembly, he put it on an LX200 mount because that was the... Uh, that was the uh, most sturdy off the shelf mount he could find at the time. This would have been 1995 and, uh, it was, it was amazing. And he told me how it worked and it was just really, you could see a lot of the sky all at one time, but the hobby has gotten involved now. And now you can buy your very own large field of view telescope. And, and so we're going to talk about that in this segment here. Uh, Dustin, you out there? I'm here. Hey, I'm here. okay. So what's going on with these wide field telescopes? I want to learn more about them because I don't know much about them. So tell me what's out there and what they can do for you.
1: Yeah, so wide field, when we're defining it, it's really just telescopes that can generally take relatively large sensors and so that they can produce large field of view and have reduced focal length. So they don't have a really long focal length of, let's say, you know, three or 4,000 millimeters. These are generally telescopes in the range from 200 millimeters up to, you know, maybe 800 millimeters, something in that range. And then when you pair that with, like I said, a big sensor, you get a huge chunk of sky all at once in your image. And um, that's that's how people are doing wide field astrophotography. And a couple of options for those. I mean, people are doing this with refractors, with apochromatic refractors, but they're also doing it with a few um catadioptrics now which are things like the um the fast star which people remove the secondary and put the camera at prime focus position or the celestron rasa has become uh become extremely popular for that reason which is just built to be an astrograph that way which is super fast prime focus uh which basically just means the secondary mirror is not there instead the camera goes in the front of the telescope to cut off a portion of the light path and um, gives you images at like f2 or f1.9 what's so great about that why what's so great
0: about getting large areas of the sky all at one time
1: well you know there are a lot of benefits to it now more so now than than ever because camera technology digital cameras have gotten so good that you know you take a sensor that's 50 or 60 or even 100 megapixels You can shoot wide, wide field and then crop in and still have the same resolution on target that you would have if before you had to shoot at a very long focal length and then fight things like seeing conditions and, you know, the issues that come in with tracking at high focal lengths and larger telescopes. So it's not, it's not a one to one comparison. It's not exactly the same because focal length will enhance resolution given that, you know, all the conditions, you know, support it like seeing. But um, it's enough that I think most people have gone that way and they start with wide-field photography and some of them never leave. I mean, look at, we've had Rogelio on the podcast multiple times, Rogelio Bernal-Andreo, and he produces, in my opinion, some of the best images in the world and they're all wide-field. Agreed, yeah. He's amazing. So,
0: so you have wide-field, which helps to... Uh, compensate for, say, maybe poor tracking, certainly poor sky conditions. Uh, Whenever you have a long focal length telescope, you also have higher magnifications, which means that in addition to magnifying or making bigger the object that you're looking at, let's say the Orion Nebula, you're also magnifying everything in between you and the Orion Nebula, all of the atmosphere, all of the vibrations in your mount, all of that stuff gets in the way. So you need super high uh, quality mounts and etc to keep all of that down plus the high quality optics at higher yeah. magnification so wide field of view you can get away with
1: a lot more is what i'm hearing is that right yeah yeah everything has to be better the longer the focal length right and plus as you get longer focal length generally the telescopes get bigger and they get heavier so you need a larger mount at that point so things become less portable um things things like balance become more critical Uh, Generally, you can't guide with a small guide scope because now the ratio is too far off from the main telescope and the guide scope and things like cone error become a huge problem if you're using guide scope. So now it has to be on an off axis guider to get the best results. Things like flexure become an issue. So as the scopes get bigger, you can get the rewards the benefits of the very large long focal length scope, but only if all of the other po- components can keep up and that becomes significantly more challenging as the telescopes get larger. So it's just easier. Uh, it's easier, you, absolutely. Yeah. Wide field is certainly easier and that's why we, we tell most, most people to start there. And then just zoom in if you've got a wide uh, format camera uh,
0: on whatever it is. Because it's going to look small, right? You're looking at, yeah. I don't know, two or three degrees. What, what What's a typical field of view? Do you know off the top of your oh, head? I oh, don't, I don't know off the top oh, of my okay. head. Plus, right. there's so we, many we, different. We, but let's say it's a few um, degrees, right? The, the full moon is a half a degree. So let's say it's, uh, it's I don't know, two
1: or three degrees. I don't know what it really is. but it's, Yeah, or larger. It's, I mean, some of these are, are larger. But huge chunks of sky, which what a lot of people like about that is it gives the image context. You're not just seeing, for instance, the Orion Nebula, something like, like I have a 17 inch plane wave that's, you know, 100 pounds plus. Um, and it has to stay permanently in observatory, obviously I'm not carrying around a scope that large with the mount with 200 pound capacity and all this stuff. It just wouldn't be practical. So it stays permanently there. And when I take a picture of the Orion Nebula, my field of view, even with a very large sensor, I mean, larger than full frame, my field of view is only still big enough because of the, the magnification to see just the Orion Nebula itself. No context around it. What's interesting about wide field and when I shoot the same targets with something like a small refractor is now I can see the Orion Nebula and the Horsehead Nebula next to it plus a large percentage of the constellation of Orion the different stars in Orion the constellation which gives the image context and kind of yeah. you know tells a little bit of the story of where it is in the night sky that's a perfect example and those are also my favorite kinds
0: of astro photos i like i like to look at the entire constellation with what's in that constellation imaged right. also i love that um
1: that's what Widefield you know, does for you
0: yeah so so and then of course if you wanted to and if you've got a high enough uh uh camera uh, resolution camera you could just zoom in on just those things that you care about but you could also make movies and all kinds of fly-throughs <laughs> it could be it could be really uh, really a lot of fun so <laughs> these these telescopes uh offer a lot in terms of visual beauty, but let me give you an example of when I first heard about a good use case for these, which was asteroid hunters. Uh, Mike Forseland, uh who we've had in the podcast several times, uses his RASA to look for uh, near-Earth objects, asteroids, and he helps plot those uh, uh, and, and get their orbital elements and puts them in a database. And so these are very, these wide field telescopes are also very useful for doing science. Uh, Especially if you need to see a lot of effects over a large area of the sky that you don't know exactly what's going to happen. So they're good for supernova searches. They're good for uh, transiting exoplanets. um, Well, if you got good enough processing and uh, and of course things like uh, near earth objects and transits. So, it's not another use case for these
1: wide field telescopes that I Yeah and well cool. they they're generally a lot faster too than the long focal length scopes and that's because for for practicality reasons you know the way that you determine a scope speed and the f-stop scale is something that we should probably go into it's very very important in photography in general yeah, especially okay. go in ahead. astrophotography but the way that you determine a telescope speed or that number that you see that f number that tells you how fast the telescope is is just a function of its aperture and its focal length. So specifically, dividing the aperture by the focal, or I'm sorry, dividing the focal length by the aperture. So let's say that you have a focal length on your refractor of 400 millimeters, but your telescope is a four inch telescope. It's 100 millimeters wide in aperture. Your front element is 100 millimeters wide. So 400 millimeters of focal length, 100 millimeters of aperture. When you divide it by the aperture, you can see the number is four. 400 divided by 100 is four. And so the f-stop would be f4. And what that tells you is in relation to other optics, how fast, how long do my exposure times have to be to get the same amount of light? And the way the f-stop scale works, if if you don't have it memorized as a, a photographer, you probably, probably should at least, you know, some of it. Um, it. You know, if you start at f1.4, which is where most camera lenses start, F1.4, the next one is two, and then 2.8, and then four. And what you can see is every other number du- number doubles. So 1.4, then two, and then you double 1.4, and it goes to 2.8. And you can see it goes on and on that way. And you can pretty much tell, or at least very close to what your F-stop is going to be. And what happens is every single number doubles the amount of light that um, comes in. So from two to F1.4, F1.4 will get double the light in the same amount of time, right? So the reverse is also true from F1.4 to two, in order for F2 to get, you know, the same amount of light, you'd have to double the exposure time, right? To get the same amount of light. And so as you go on and on, you can do the math and figure out, well, then obviously, you know, something, a scope that's, like we were talking about F2, is going to be way, way faster than a scope like my plane wave that's f7 roughly, right? It's going to be. It's going to take me way longer to get the same amount of light that it would if I had a scope that was really fast, like f2. And so, one of the benefits is being able to do shorter exposure times with these really fast wide field telescopes. And that's that's kind of why um, I think an- another benefit, especially with CMOS cameras now that reward shorter exposure times of why people are getting such great results is the cameras and the telescopes just match really well and the benefits of both are amplified by having a telescope that shoots wide field with high resolution camera, but also does not require long exposure times
0: right it's just a, it's it's a ratio so it's the ratio of the focal length yeah. to the diameter and if you know you've got a 50 millimeter lens and you're shooting at f2 then your focal length's 100 millimeters so exactly uh, you can always interchange the find out these numbers uh, with any two that you already know so uh good i'm glad we did that i that was probably something we should probably should have done long ago <laughs> so yeah. f ratio is explained uh so thank you dustin okay so um what are some of the manufacturers is everybody making a wide field telescope now or is it only certain manufacturers
1: uh so not everybody um there are a lot of wide field options that exist because um refractors have gotten immensely popular apple refractors especially you know over the last couple of years with the um, you know the smaller telescopes, like Radian sixty-one, the Red Cat, and on and on. There's several of them out. These telescopes have made wide-field astrophotography very popular because social media, you know, is a vehicle for people to share this, and this sharing, you know, produces exponential interest. And so people see these images. Generally, the first question is, is that real? you know, what is that? Because we don't have any reason outside of having a fascination with space to know what a nebula is or a galaxy. You start seeing these images and it blows you away. Um, but then people start asking questions. And then once it comes out that like, hey, people are doing this in their backyard, like for instance, Trevor, <laughs> uh, Trevor Jones, Astro Backyard. I mean, this is what he's so good at is is showing people that side of the hobby, how how much benefit to life and, and just... Um, you know, your perspective on things that just taking something out into your backyard and shooting, that it's not only possible, it's fun. And it's an, it's an experience that can be shared with people. I mean, it gets a lot of people interested in the hobby. And most people that get interested and start the hobby want to start with something that they can immediately be successful with. And most of the time, that's a small refractor. So most companies have picked up on that and started producing very high quality optics. I mean, there are a ton of great options out there for not a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about telescopes that can take very high world class level images for under a thousand bucks. You know, so those are those are things that just really didn't didn't always exist, and it's only recently that they've come to exist in the way they do.
0: Yeah, now. but this that's like an f four, right? That those those yeah, are they're generally a, in
1: the f four to f six range. Yeah, so those imaging apos.
0: So to make an f two uh, refractor, that would be like
1: Celestron Rasa. Yeah, like yeah, the eight inch Celestron Rasa or the eleven but that's catadioptric, not a refractor, right? Not a refractor. Yeah. So those are, those are catadioptrics. They have a corrector plate and they have a primary mirror. They just skip the secondary mirror and instead that's where the camera goes. And they have a series of lenses that correct that flatten the image for the camera there. Um, But then those are just incredibly, incredibly fast systems. I mean, when you're talking about F2, these are systems that you can almost do live video and see galaxies. Yeah, you know they're so yeah. fast, especially the 11. They even have a 14 inch. I mean, that's like that's like sucking all the light out of the universe. <laughs> that's
0: what I well, that's what I want. I, I, that interests me is doing live streams from a telescope that um, would be live. That's the kind yeah. of thing I'd like to. That's get what my they excel on. at. Um, but so, but the problem with an, a refractor, uh, making them such sh- short focal lengths is that you have to, if you've ever seen a fisheye lens, I mean, physically looked at the shape of a fisheye lens, for example, uh, it's got a huge, you know, curve on it. And to make that curve without a lot of color problems, in other words, a lot of color, uh, refraction or rainbows everywhere is, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's very expensive and hard to do. And so you right. don't see a lot of F2 refractors because of the amount of grinding that has to go in to a refractive element. And they, I think it's just more, much more, certainly more practical on a on a, uh, economic level to make
1: them into these hybrid systems. You just start bumping up against, you know, a lot of physics. things that just make it impractical. <laughs> yeah, you physics. it very expensive and, and physics, doesn't like it much at all <laughs> when you start trying to make light, do weird things like that. So, um, you know, you start bumping up against the edges of what's currently possible, but yeah. yes, for reflectors, it, it's not an issue. I mean, they get to those speeds comfortably. Right,
0: and you're just and you only have to work. You're just making one surface into a uh, shape that you want instead of all of the surfaces with all of the glass being mm-hmm. being perfect. And you're basically just making a prism. <laughs> if you go too right. deep with your with right. your curves, so you, you really get to a point where the spectrum or the, the the color problems are so bad that you can't do it. Yeah, uh, I don't know what and that does. It does, limit it does is,
1: produce but... a few other issues, like having the camera at the front of the scope. Now you have cables that are at the front of the scope, so it can produce some strange looking. Um, like diffraction spikes, things of that sort. The images, typically at those high speeds, even with a refractor, you're going to get sharper images at a slightly slower speed. That same thing is true with camera lenses. Um, so you know, w- the w- there, it's always a trade-off. To get the best possible images, you can't go for the fastest possible speeds. But you know, to do that, you're also giving up the versatility of being able to do, like you said, for outreach being able to run live video and show people things or one second exposures and being able to see the Whirlpool Galaxy. You know, that's the benefit of these super fast scopes is that you can do that sort of thing. And it's really for outreach. I mean, it's tough to beat being able to show color images in near real time. And it's how most of it I've seen has been done. So it's really, truly an incredible thing.
0: Yeah. I think that's my next, when I get rich, that's going to be my next purchase. I think is 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 one of these wide field systems. I really um, am intrigued by what's possible with them. So, um, so thank you, Dustin, look into these, uh, wide field systems. They are F on order of F2. Um, and we've just learned about what F means now, not F well, never mind. (laughs) but anyway, (laughs) uh, in the astronomical amateur construct, that's what it means. Okay. Thanks, Dustin. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Okay, it is time now for questions from our listeners. Yay! I need to get some like little... Silly sound effects for this, but little applause things. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for emailing because now it's starting to take off. Now you guys are starting to do it. And I'm starting to get more emails than I think I can answer in the course of this segment. So I'm going to pick two and I'll try to get to if I haven't answered yours, then please be patient. I will. Uh, I'll try to respond later. This was from Mitch, who emailed me at space junk at deep Something you can also do. He goes, Hey, Tony, first off, I like the new format where you cover a topic and then go into the equipment talking two thumbs up. Thank you. I've been experimenting with this format and I'm glad that it's working, at least for some of you. Some of you would rather go back to, to equipment only talks, but you know, this at least is a compromise. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Continuing the black hole conversations. Oh man. Uh, My question relates to dark matter. Okay, now this black hole thing really got you guys thinking, right? So, a lot of questions on. In fact, almost everything has been about black holes that I've gotten in. Since this mysterious dark matter has been so elusive, both in the lab and observing in the sky, I'm wondering if we're missing something about gravity related to the black holes in the center of galaxies. Since black holes have such a dramatic effect on space time, could the spinning of them cause ripples? in space that helps carry the stars along faster. Think of it as an undersized tablecloth or doily um, on a slippery tabletop. You pinch the middle of it and start twisting. It drags the tablecloth with the twisting motion. Could the black hole be dragging space along as it spins, thus causing the unexplained speed of stars around the galaxy center? the stars would be more or less surfing along the rippled surface caused by the splitting black hole. Just a thought. Well, I don't see how that relates to dark matter, Mitch. I'm sorry. I don't see the connection there between dark matter. But you do make a good point about missing something about gravity on large scales. And that's a theory that people are proposing that is an alternative to dark matter. It stands for Modified Newtonian Dynamics. And it's called MOND, and it's a it's a modification to gravity at large scales that would help explain the rotations we see in galaxies uh, without the need for dark matter. It it does not explain other things uh, that dark matter does explain, and I can't bring them off the top of my head what they are, but because I'm not an expert on this, but um, but there. There's still a big, pretty fierce debate about whether or not dark matter even exists, or um, or whether it's something related to modified gravity at large scales. Sean Carroll, someone whom I would highly recommend you listen to and read, he's a uh, he's a cosmologist. He has his own podcast, and he also writes a lot of stuff on social media. I asked him once about this, and he said, "Well, if dark matter doesn't exist, then something like it will." Must exist, and he explained that the observations that are taken in total of all the different effects, something like dark matter, must exist, and it's not a problem with gravity that's what he says, and I tend to you know agree with that we're going back to your uh, doily effect on the ripples in space time, a rotating black hole will cause a as I mentioned before a torus shape of space-time around it, around the outside of the event horizon, that causes light to encircle the black hole so that you can see things behind it and things like that, but is not ripple-shaped. To create ripples, one needs to have a collision of some sort, a, uh, a merging of two black holes together will cause exactly that effect that you're talking about, of this doily sort of a twisting doily shaped thing uh, will occur when two black holes are spinning towards and spiraling towards each other and then merge that exact effect that you're outlining does get created in the center of galaxies though a large spinning supermassive black hole creates a torus that will pull things closer or in orbit around it. The, the closer it gets it'll go faster and faster but it won't um it won't create this doily, effect, this ripple effect that you're talking about where stars are kind of riding a, a wave. This would happen in a black hole merger, but not in an ordinary occurrence of stars orbiting a supermassive black hole in a galaxy. There'll be a torus there in a the spinning black hole. And the as the material gets closer to that black hole from the outer part of the galaxy, it will spin faster and faster. But all of it is accounted for. It's not missing. And it, and it still does not explain the rotation curves that we see in galaxies. If the whole reason this dark matter thing came out to begin with was a galaxy should be doing what you say in the center of these galaxies, it should be spinning faster in the middle than it is in the outer edges, but it's not. The outer edges are traveling at the same rotation rate as the inside. And that doesn't make any sense other than there must be some other mass out in the galaxy causing this rotation rate. And that's where dark matter initially came from. It was first observed by Vera Rubin in her telescopes. And she made these very first galaxy rotation rate curves and nobody could figure them out. So I hope that answers your question. You're kind of on track with parts of that with dark matter. But the uh, ripple effect will only happen in a black hole merger. Okay, I have another email here from uh, Ruben. Uh, he is from Central America, and he says that uh, he appreciates the uh, he appreciates the podcast. He especially likes the part where Dustin and I talk about stuff. Um, and all the geeks, uh, uh, the telescope geekery that we get involved in. So he appreciates that. And he wishes that I could speak more about my 20 inch beast dragon telescope. He calls it, uh, because if I want to buy a Dobsonian, um, I mean, I know for now that you could go, uh, that you could add a go-to system from a third party to adapt a brand, or if you want to do some astrophotography with a Dobsonian, there are equatorial platforms that you can buy or build, but he wants to hear more about, my experience with my telescope. It is a, uh, it was given to me by Dustin. It was a, uh, 20 inch sky Watcher. It is a go-to telescope. And I think I will, we'll do an episode on large Dobsonians, just Dustin and I, and we'll talk about those. Um, but I have to tell you, um, Ruben, I use mine primarily as a visual telescope. I don't, I don't, I'm just not into imaging. I've done it my whole career and other people really get into it. But to me, it's like, I've seen so many pictures of the Orion Nebula. I don't need to take more, um, but it is a very nice telescope. And I can, under, and I think it is used. It would be useful for imaging um, so long as I don't worry about field rotation, but I will talk about it more. I think we're, we're going to do a segment on Dobsonians That's a great idea. All right, and I'll tell you more about it then. All right, guys, thank you for your questions. I'm gonna sign off here. Keep them coming. Space Junk or Space Junk Podcast at deepastronomy.com. Both work and I'll either read out your question or try and try to answer it as best I can uh via email if I don't get a chance to do it on the on the podcast. So, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up.